This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, I'm Li Xueying, and you're listening to Letter from the Bureau. Joining me today is ST's India correspondent, Dabashi Daskuta. He tells us about his trip to Kiran, which many would agree is an unlikely tourism destination. Good to have you on the show, Dabashi. Thanks so much, Shuin. It's nice to be back. So, Dabashi, you took a trip recently, but it's not the usual holiday jaunt, is it? Tell us more about this village, Kiran, that you went to and its significance. Right. It's certainly been one of the more unusual trips uh, that I've taken as part of my work for uh, the Straits Times showing. It's a small uh, village in Kashmir, uh, northern India, some uh, 1,500 meters above the sea level. It's nestled in a Himalayan valley right on the banks of the Kishinganga River. But more importantly, mm-hmm. I think for our story, it's situated along the de facto border between India and Pakistan, which is known as the line of control. This is a military ceasefire line that was agreed to between India and Pakistan after the war in 1971. Now, few Indians would have heard about this village until maybe a year or back when it popped up as a tourism destination on the line of control. And this is because the government's decision to promote it as part of its border tourism move. The government wants to use this opportunity to bring development and better livelihood opportunities to these remote reaches and give the youth here you know, something to look forward to. So there are about 1,500 locals in Kerin, and they've had to make do with very little over the years, especially when it comes to livelihood opportunities. They would either mostly work as porters for the Indian Army or migrate to other cities and towns in the region for work, right? So farming is also not very productive here because the weather is uh, very hostile and landholding sizes are very small. So finally, there is this additional window of opportunity that locals in Kerins have today. You know, they're converting their homes uh, into homestays for tourists who want to come and explore Karen's uh, unspoiled beauty, but more importantly, uh, also enjoy the unhindered view of life across the border in the other half of uh, Karen, across the Kishanganga River in Pakistan. Right. So I think you spent um, three nights at Karen at one of these homestays. Yeah. So can you take us there? What will we see, hear or even feel when we are there? I'll, I'll get to that, but there's one caveat I want to add to this conversation. Mm, sure. This village will come across as a potential beacon of hope. And I'd like to see it as such, you know, especially for this conflict region ridden region, and its battle-weary people. But I, I say that with utmost caution and a million caveats because, you know, one single uh, major terrorist attack in Kashmir can set this story back by many, many years. So it's with that context in our minds, I think we should have this conversation. Mm. So uh, I went to Srinagar which is where you need to fly to from Delhi. So I flew from Delhi to Srinagar and then I took a cab to Kerun. Uh, it's about a four hours drive. And then I spent two nights there. So you will see what is certainly obvious. Anybody would see, you know, majestic snow-covered peaks, alpine slopes. You'll have the burbling Kishanganga River, its rocky banks. And across the banks, then you'll see Pakistan occupied Kashmir, which is how India refers to the part of Kashmir that is under Pakistan's control. Right. It is Pakistan for all practical purposes. And if you look closer, you will catch glimpses of your, you know, quote unquote, enemy and their mundane lives. These are things I saw. A couple taking an evening walk, a child playing with a tire, rolling it along the road, Mm. along the river, a livestock farmer herding its cattle, Pakistani vehicles of different make with different markings um, along the border. 
resorts that line the road along the river on the other side. Because Pakistan has also promoted tourism. It's not just India you know, along the border. Then you'll see multiple flags of Azad Kashmir or Free Kashmir, which is how Pakistan calls Kashmir under its control along the road. So you will see this sort of uh, subcontinental one-upmanship at play in Karen, with each side trying to you know, pass itself off as the better one than the other. So if you're in India and you look at Karen on the other side in Pakistan, you'll see this large sign, which has become like a selfie point for Indian tourists, which says Kashmir is equal to Pakistan. Yes. And then on the Indian side, you have this large sign that says uh, Kashmir shines bright in India's future. So there's this tension of a different kind between the two countries. And India erected a really, really tall, I think it's a 22-meter flagpole yes. in 2022. And now Pakistan is retaliating by reportedly constructing one that's even taller. Well, what's going to come next after that? So <laughs> you'll see these things. But if you, yeah, I know. But if you were a more discerning tourist and you look even closer, you will see houses, perhaps even your homestay, which is pockmarked with shell wounds from last years of conflict. Mm. And if you spend some time talking to the locals, you will hear stories of hope, how they want tourism to develop further so that they can put the difficult past behind. Yeah, as I said, they didn't have much choice earlier. Mm, yes, There is a sense of optimism where the locals are now talking and dreaming about being entrepreneurs while remaining with their families in the village, whether it's as trekking guides or restaurant chefs or hotel owners. So one thing that you wrote, and you mentioned it just now, which is the ability to establish contact with the local Pakistanis across the river, the enemies, so to speak. And this is whether it's by shouting out greetings or waving at one another. And I think you did write something that was very poignant. I thought you said, and I quote, I smile, a smile I wish they could see. So could you, could you share that with us? Why is that something that is so poignant for you? And what does it say really about the lack of the people-to-people relationship between India and Pakistan today. Yeah, I'm really happy you noted that excerpt uh, because it is what uh, stood out for me during this visit. Mm. Many people are actually drawn to Karen because of this, because if you want to see beautiful uh, hill stations, there are many other places to go to. So why come yes. and take this trouble of a flight and then inhospitable terrain, subpar homestays? It's to be able to see Pakistan up close and personal. But to help you better appreciate this, I'm sorry, it'll take a while, but I just want to bring up a little bit of my personal history so that you can better appreciate where I came from. So my grandparents, uh, both sets from my father's and my mother's side, were forced to leave the ancestral homeland in Silet Division, which was hived off from India to become part of East Pakistan during India's partition in 1947. Mm -hmm. And Silet today is in northwestern Bangladesh, tucked under India's northeast. So as with other partitions, there is this deep sense of loss of homeland that was inflicted on my family. It's a feeling I feel that was never fully acknowledged. Very few among my immediate relatives have gone back to Bangladesh, perhaps because the desire not to bring up a troubled and difficult past. So for the longest time, it was the simplest of questions that unsettled me the most. Where are you from? Mm. I didn't know where my family was from. So it was only in 2012 that after a lot of persuasion that I was able to convince my father to travel with me to Bangladesh, we were able to retrace my father's extended family's ancestral plot and meet long lost relatives. I even brought back some soil with me as a sense of some uh, closure from my family's plot. So it is this longing of being part of a larger family as well as history and geography Mm. in South Asia that overwhelmed me when I visited Karen. And I say that not out of some illusion of historical grandeur or a desire to conquest what was part of uh, India, but just a deep and simple haunting sense of loss. 
And this sense of loss is far, far worse for those who migrated from what is today Pakistan, because India has a very troubled mm. relationship with its Western neighbor, unlike with Bangladesh, which is where my grandparents came from. So this means people to people links, something that you wanted me to throw some light on between the two sides are non-existent, mm. practically making it very difficult and very expensive for people to travel to Pakistan. Since 2019, all public transport links, including rail and flights yes. between the two countries have been severed because of tensions over a terror attack mm. um, you know, that was carried out in Pulwama when 40 security personnel died in a suicide bomber attack. And also because of India's decision to revoke Kashmir's semi-autonomous uh, status later that year. Even uh, the bus services between the two sides of Kashmir were suspended in 2019. In fact, when I was just digging up and doing some research, and if I'm correct, I think today, the only way for a traveler to travel directly from India to Pakistan mm. is to cross on foot at the border in Wagha in Punjab right. in northern India. Right. And when in Kiran, I met an old gentleman whose close family members live across the border in Pakistan occupied Kashmir. Mm. So if geography and logic had its way, mm. this journey for him would take just a few hours. Yes. But it took him uh, a few days to travel to uh, see his family and cost him far more when he went to meet them recently. So he had to travel first from Kiran to Srinagar and then to Delhi to get his visa issued from the Pakistan High Commission. And then he had to take a bus, which is several hours, uh, perhaps 10 or 12, to go to Wagha and then cross over into eastern Pakistan, which is Lahore, and then take multiple buses to Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. It is a really, really long detour. So besides this inconvenience, there's also this fear that many Indians have perhaps more perceived than real of having a Pakistani travel history that raises the possibility of Indian you know, authorities and intelligence agencies having you on their radar. Right. So which makes Indians even more reluctant to visit Pakistan. So I can see how this interaction across the river yeah. at the Ekiran is so precious. Yes, exactly. So when I see photos of estranged family members from India and Pakistan hugging each other, such as India recently opened special religious corridor mm. for Sikh pilgrims between the two countries in Punjab. Mm. I can't help but a share too. And this is why I welcome every effort that chips away at this invisible and seemingly impenetrable wall that exists between us. I mean, I don't get to meet Pakistanis despite the fact that they are my closest foreign neighbor geographically in Delhi, mm. which is why I relish this opportunity of waving and smiling at Pakistanis <laughs> from Kiran. I mean, we get that opportunity uh, if you go to Wagha, mm. right, which is this really popular Indo-Pak border attraction. But the interaction with the other side is not intimate mm. as it is in Kiran. It's mediated by this big show that's put up by the border security personnel. It's tinged mm. with choreographed aggression. Soldiers are puffing their chests, mm. you know, goose-stepping, the other side into submission. And tourists are out shouting the other side in trying to show themselves as a better lot. So it just adds to tension rather than bring people closer, which is what we want ultimately. So Karen, that way is a very refreshing change. And I hope it remains that way. And just for context, uh, I want to say that it's far easier, thankfully, to travel between India and Nepal and India and Bangladesh mm. and Sri Lanka right. with flights, bus, rail, and even ferry services now between India and Sri Lanka. So Pakistan remains this unfortunate blind spot. Also hanging over all of this is the fact that India and Pakistan have fought three full-scale wars. I think that's something you mentioned in your piece as well. Yeah. And two of these were over Kashmir. So, as you noted, the 2021 ceasefire agreement did help to lower the temperature to the extent that we see the border tourism that you describe. But exactly how peaceful is it today and how sustained is this relative harmony? In in one word, if I can just sum that, yes. my response, it's fragile. Yes. 
you know, we don't know how uh, it's going to uh, turn out uh, tomorrow. Mm. So while the ceasefire has largely held uh, since 2021, we've not made much progress. Public transport services have not resumed between our two countries, not even the bus service between the two Kashmirs. Mm. So India and Pakistan currently do not even have high commissioners in their respective capitals because Pakistan expelled the Indian High Commissioner in 2019 after India stripped Kashmir of its mm. special status and recalled its High Commissioner from Delhi. So amidst this, the Indian government likes to showcase the rising numbers of tourists in Kashmir as evidence of the situation returning to normal. But normalcy cannot exist in a bubble. This is what someone told me when I was interviewing people in Srinagar. And I think this is a very important thing to keep in mind because we need to keep the long-term perspective in picture. What baby steps is India taking or are India and Pakistan taking to help resolve this long festering bilateral wound? Mm. And what measures will India take to address the legitimate needs and aspirations of Kashmiris and uh, restore its statehood, which is something that the government has committed to in the long run? So these are uh, points to keep in mind, especially as we have a long, long way to go, even before we can go back to the suboptimal state of ties that existed uh, before 2019. And showing here, I must mention, when I was speaking to Kashmiris uh, during that trip, there is this ominous fear of another attack of the kind we saw in February 2019, when 40 people died. Mm. And the Indian government reacted very sharply. This was just before the general elections that year, because the government didn't want to lose support from enraged voters. So it sent its jets over Pakistan, dropping bombs on its territory, allegedly over Pakistani terrorist camp. So forces inimical to any rapprochement between India and Pakistan could exploit this critical juncture that we are at right now, months before uh, elections. Right. So Dabashi, tell me a bit more about border tourism. So it appears to be a growth area for India. Besides Pakistan, India shares its borders with other countries such as China, Nepal, Bangladesh, Bhutan and Myanmar. So are there other frontier towns that are becoming popular as well as tourist destinations? And if so, can you explain this phenomenon to us? So... As I mentioned, there are some border locations that are very popular with Indian uh, tourists, especially Waga. Mm. But then there is also the Nathula border pass in Sikkim, a Himalayan region between India and Tibet or China. And people travel there out of curiosity, even though exchanges are suspended because of our tensions with China now. Mm. And then there are locations along India's borders with Bangladesh and Myanmar. But they aren't uh, you know, tourism destinations per se. Uh, getting to some of them can also be difficult because of lack of connectivity right. from other parts of the country, as well as ongoing troubles in Manipur, mm. which is on the border with Myanmar, or in fact, uh, because of the trouble in Myanmar with refugees coming in. But of late, the government has had this trust in opening up border locations to tourists across country. So along with Keran, there are some other locations in Kashmir that have been opened up. So the argument is you will get tourists to come in and this will spawn development and bring livelihood opportunities. And in 2022, there was another location that opened up in Gujarat on, on the western side of the country or with the border with Pakistan. It's in Narabet, which is in a low-lying salt desert region. So that's also been attracting crowds because of its spectacular geographical location. Right. And is this strategy of trying to get tourists to these places, is it working out the way the government wants it to? And who are the people who are actually going, besides journalists like yourself? <laughs> In fact, there are many average Indian travellers, many young Indian travellers. I would yes. not say middle-aged families. It's not a family tourism destination, Karen. There are even a few uh, foreigners I met who are attracted by its remoteness because they want to travel and see remote parts of India and not just cities. So there are quite a few people and it's making incremental progress. But as I said, one terror attack and everything is undone. Yes. Um, there's lots to be done because you need good places to stay. The lodging in Karen are very modest. 
attached toilets are a luxury right now in Kerala. So you need to develop the infrastructure at these border locations before people can get there in droves or the numbers that the government wants them to come. Right. And in fact, I think you were saying that when you were in Kiran, there was some sniper fire, which you were yeah. blissful, yeah. blissfully yeah. unaware of, but it was happening. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Because even before I went, uh, you know, my wife wasn't too happy. My parents weren't too happy saying that, why do you need to go? But then I said, this is the job of a oh, journalist. <laughs> And thank God, uh, you know, I was blissfully unaware about this sniper fire and nothing happened there. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's how it is. Okay, well, thanks so much for braving so much in the line of work. You're very much appreciated. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you. It was a joy to go there. I'd do it again at the drop of a hat. Well, that's a wrap for Letter from the Bureau. If you'd like to read the Bashi Daskutas column, we have a link in our podcast show notes. You will also find a link to other articles in our Letter from the Bureau series. Send your feedback to podcast at sbh.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.